So, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Kennan Institute. Uh, a brief note about some upcoming events before we get started with today's uh, meeting. On we have a busy week next week with three events. On Tuesday, February 18th at 3 p.m., we will have a talk on censorship and self-censorship in Russia with Konstantin Sonin and Konstantin Eggert. On Wednesday, February 19th at 2 p.m., we will have a talk on KGB photography and films, The Image of the Enemy with Tatyana Vagramenko. And on Thursday, February 20th at 4 p.m., uh, we will have a talk by a former Wilson Center fellow, Gulberna Aksan, on China's business in Central Asia, power and anxiety. Well, today we're pleased to have our discussion on George F. Kennan and the establishment of the State of Israel. Uh, today's event is co-sponsored with the History and Public Policy Program. And to lead us through our discussion, we have Jeffrey Herf, who is the Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History at the University of Maryland College Park, where he teaches modern European and especially modern German history. He is a author of numerous publications, including Undeclared Wars with Israel, East Germany and West German, and the, and the West German Radical Left. And he is also the author of The Jewish Enemy, Nazi Propaganda During World War II and the Holocaust. He is currently working on a book with the working title, Israel's Moment, Politics and Policy in the United States and Europe Regarding the Establishment of the Jewish State in Palestine, 1945 to 1949. He is a former fellow at the Wilson Center with the History and Public Policy Program. And Professor Herf, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. I want to give my thanks to uh, William Pomerantz and uh, his colleague Isabella Tabarowski for uh, inviting me here. And thank, thanks to the audience for for coming. Uh, uh, I want to begin with uh, two biographical notes. Um, I would imagine like uh, many or some of you in the audience, um, I had the great pleasure uh, to meet George Kennan. And when I met the very famous, very great man, um, I was neither very famous uh, nor or perhaps it, greatness was in the future or whatever. Um, but um, we did have something in common, and that is we both grew up on the east side of Milwaukee. And uh, uh, he, um, uh, and boys from the Midwest uh, lack a certain pretentiousness, uh, even, if you, even if we live in New York and Washington for decades. And uh, he was incredibly gracious and warm and helpful as I was writing a book called Divided Memory. Uh, and was writing about the anti-cosmopolitan purges uh, in East Germany. Um, and of course, he knew a great deal about that subject and took a great deal of interest in what I was doing. And it touched me very deeply um, because I was not a professor at a major university. In fact, I didn't have a steady job at the moment. So that his graciousness and kindness is something I'll remember forever. Uh, and I just wanted to say that because I'm going to have a few critical things to say about him, based on Billy Wilder's insight that nobody is perfect. Um, and uh, the second point I want to make biographically is that I approach the history of American foreign policy in these years uh, with the perspective of a German historian, uh, a historian not only of Germany before 1945, but after. And the weight of Nazism and the Holocaust and the Second World War, understandably, has been very much at the forefront of my mind uh, for decades. And one of the striking features about Kennan and George Marshall and Robert Lovett and the major formulators of American foreign policy in the, in the immediate post-war years was how little all that, um, at least in terms of what they wrote and said in public, how little all of that seemed to have made an impression on American policy. In the last two decades of the Cold War, perhaps even earlier, as many of you are aware, the Soviet Union launched a very successful propaganda campaign that had two consequences. The first consequence was to banish from global public attention the two-year-long history of Soviet Zionism between 1947 and 1948, when the Soviet Union 
and its ally Czechoslovakia uh, provided indispensable diplomatic and military support to the Jews in Palestine at a time when the United States was uh, supporting an arms embargo on the Middle East. We historians don't deal in hypotheticals. Whether the Jews would have won the war of 1947-48 without the assistance of uh, the Czech arms is a question I leave to others. Um, but it was not the United States that supplied the weapons that the Jews needed at that time. And President's Trump, President Truman's decisions, which uh, Ronald and uh, uh, Alice Radosh have described so well, and they're, they're here today, uh, of course were indispensable for the establishment of the State of Israel. But if it had been up to the State Department, uh, it's an open question whether the Jews would have won that war. Uh, so uh, the suppression of the history of Soviet Zionism um, was one success of Soviet propaganda during the war. And the second success of Soviet and then global leftist and new leftist propaganda during the last several decades of the Cold War was that the establishment of the State of Israel had something to do with something called American imperialism. Uh, and that uh, uh, the, um, and that this was a sin uh, inseparable from its birth. This became an element of the zeitgeist in universities all over the, all over the world, in this country and in Europe, and the coupling of Zionism and imperialism and Zionism and racism in 1975, as you all will recall, was codified uh, for, by the United Nations for several decades. So it's with these elements of the zeitgeist uh, that I uh, approach the history <coughs> of policy towards the Middle East in the crucial years of 1946-47-48. One of the problems for the uh, formulators of American foreign policy <coughs> after the war, and especially after Kennan's long telegram, was that public opinion in the United States, and not only public opinion, but uh, political leaders in the Senate and the House expressed great empathy and sympathy for the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine. That empathy and sympathy came from openly leftist publications like PM or left liberal publications like The Nation um, and uh, the New York Post, which at the time was a left liberal tabloid. Um, and while the State Department might want to ignore what the leftists in New York had to say, um, about uh, uh, how wonderful it would be if the Jews had a state in Palestine, it was a little more difficult to ignore Senator Robert Taft and Senator Robert Wagner and Congressman Emanuel Seller and the dozens and dozens of other senators and congressmen who were supporting resolutions in favor of establishing a Jewish state in Palestine in 1945 and 1946. And I don't have time to go into the, the details um, uh, the details of American politics uh, in those years are, are very well described, uh, by, both by Michael Cohn in his book on Truman and Israel and also by the Radoshes in their book, A Safe Haven. Uh, the, um, the problem, uh, what, there was another, another problem for the State Department, and that was a problem that I became more aware of when I wrote my book, Nazi Propaganda for the Arab World, which was published in 2009. In 1977, the files of the American Embassy in Cairo were declassified, and it revealed that there were about 3,000 pages um, of a remarkable research project, in a way, called Access Broadcast in Arabic. And those of you who've read Nazi propaganda for the Arab world know what was in those, uh, what was in those files. And what was in those files was indisputable, powerful, convincing, extensive evidence that Hajim and al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, was not only a collaborator uh, with the Nazi regime and not only had a famous picture of him taken with Hitler on November 28th of 1941, but that the State Department knew uh, in its files from Cairo, which had circulated to the office of the Secretary of State and throughout the top levels of the State Department and American intelligence agencies, that Hajim and al-Husseini was a vicious and uh, uh, anti-Semite, a Jew hater, uh, and that he did all he could uh, to spread uh, Nazi racism and anti-Semitism uh, to the Middle East, uh, and that he was aware of the extermination uh, of the Jews of Europe. In 1945, 
1946, Stephen Wise and Abba Silver of the uh, American Zionist, uh, uh, the American Emergency Zionist Committee, spoke with Loy Henderson and other officials in the United States State Department about the fragments, fra uh, about documents that were coming out uh, leaking from the Nuremberg, probably leaking from the Nuremberg uh, war crime staff, uh, about Husseini's collaboration with the Nazis. And they urged Henderson and they urged the State Department to go on the offensive against him because he had emerged as a leader of the Arab Higher Committee, uh, which was claiming to represent the Palestine Arabs. And they urged the United States government to go on a, uh, an offensive against Husseini and attempt to discredit him in world public opinion by drawing attention to the history of his Nazi collaboration. They got nowhere. But nevertheless, the momentum of 1945 to 1947, based on the very vivid memories of the Second World War in the United States from the center right of the Republican Party. There, in those days, there still was a center right of the Republican Party. Um, uh, uh, all the way uh, to the Democratic Party and even to, the to a leftist publication, an openly leftist publication like PM, uh, the momentum in favor of the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine was seen as the logical culmination of the anti-fascist passions and belief of the Second World War. Uh, this was a defining, if you were a leftist or a liberal in 1945, 46, 47, you may not have been a Zionist, uh, but you certainly were empathetic and sympathetic to the Zionist aspirations. Now, um, the... I reread the long telegram, and I assume all of you have read the long telegram many times. Um, one of the striking sentences of that uh, very famous, perhaps most famous document in American foreign relations in the last 75 years is that uh, in February of 1946, less than a year after the end of the war on the Eastern Front, Kennan described the Soviet Union's view <clears throat> of the rest of the world as somewhat neurotic and paranoid. Now, Marxism-Leninism and Soviet uh, ideology certainly had powerful elements of paranoia and conspiratorial thinking, and Stalin have certainly embodied that. There's no question about that. But if you read the long telegram again, and I would urge you to do that, there's nothing in it, not a sentence, about the fact that the Nazi regime launched a race war in the Eastern Front that eight million soldiers of the Red Army died, and that six million uh, civilians of the Soviet Union lost their lives as a result of the race war that the Soviet Union waged on the Eastern Front, part of which included, of course, the Holocaust. Uh, it, I found it very odd uh, that that didn't sink in somehow into what Kennan wrote in those years. And maybe, uh, and this wouldn't be an exception, maybe it took a long time uh, before the really, the, the history of the war in the Eastern Front to sink into American consciousness, and perhaps it still hasn't done so. But the, um, the author of Containment was not an expert on the Middle East, and he didn't claim to be. Um, uh, but Kennan's significance in this story is to have taken his brilliance, his com amazing command of the English language, um, his... Uh, uh, as well as his understanding of diplomatic complexities, and to apply the global strategy of containing communism and the Soviet Union to the specific and local realities of the Middle East. Loy Henderson and the other Arabists in the State Department uh, had close ties to the Arab governments, and many of them went native, and they adopted the, the, the views of the Arab states, and uh, it was not it was not surprising that the State Department Arabists would be hostile to Zionist aspirations. But what Kennan did, and he was, very, he was appointed, as you, uh, many of you know, to be director of the policy planning staff in the summer of 1947, what Kennan was able to do was to take his fame and prestige uh, and to take the arguments that had emerged from the Arabists and then express them as a consensus, which they were. They were a consensus in the State Department and especially in the Joint Chiefs that the establishment of the Jewish state in Israel, um, whether or not it was an expression of the passions and belief of the uh, anti-fascist era of the Second World War, but that the establishment of the Jewish state in Israel would undermine American national security interests in the Middle East. In the um, uh, summer of 1947, 
uh, and I have, I'm shortening things a great deal. Uh, George Marshall uh, became very, very concerned uh, about Ernst Bevin's decisions to want to withdraw from Greece. Uh, and uh, the, uh, he decided that it would be a good idea for leaders of the British military and British diplomacy to meet in Washington in the fall of 1947 with uh, top leaders of the State Department and the Pentagon. And the result was known as the Pentagon Talks. Uh, the Pentagon Talks, some of those documents are in Foreign Relations of the United States online. Uh, and at the Pentagon Talks, uh, which are very important for understanding uh, American strategy uh, in the Middle East in the years to come, uh, the concern was voiced uh, by both the Americans and the British uh, that uh, Western policy in the Middle East require the retention of British power and British presence. This was the, the, uh, the key finding. Uh, without it, without it, um, uh, the Soviet Union might, uh, re might, might uh, acquire a foot in the middle, uh, a, a foundation in the Middle East, and the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine uh, might be the door through which the Soviet Union would move into the region. I'm simplifying, and so I read that I'm, I'm shortening a great deal, but generally speaking, at the Pentagon talks, both the British and the Americans deferred somewhat to the British, believing the British knew more about the region than the Americans did. The view of the Arabs was that the, Arabs, the Arab world and the Muslim world was fundamentally conservative, very religious, um, somewhat anti-modern, and rather immune to the appeals of communism. But the Jews, on the other hand, as they came from Europe and were a more modern people and were familiar with socialism and Marxism, the Jews might be uh, a source through which the Soviets could find a foothold. Uh, none of, in the documents, you won't find raw comparisons of uh, a coupling of Zionism with communism in the way that there was a coupling of, Jew, uh, of Jews with communism. But nevertheless, there was a sense that, um, uh, that the, this new Zionist project uh, would be of benefit to the Soviet Union and uh, not to the West. Uh, uh, these were uh, conclusions that uh, uh, then filtered up uh, to the White House and uh, convinced uh, President Truman of their uh, validity. Uh, on November 29th of 1947, as you'll recall, the United Nations, uh, by a two-thirds majority, passed uh, the partition resolution uh, that would div divide, mandate Palestine into an Arab state and into a Jewish state. Um, and this audience will also recall that, um, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, uh, soon after the partition plan was uh, received its two-thirds majority at the UN, William Eddy, William Eddy, former Marine Corps officer, US minister to Saudi Arabia from 1944 to 46, participant in the meeting between Franklin Roosevelt and King Ibn Saud in 1944, and a consultant to the Arabian-American oil company, Aramco, Eddy wrote a memo on December 31st of 1947. And the Eddy memo was then sent to the policy planning staff on January 5th. It's a long memo, and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he did not mince words. Overshadowing all other matters is the adverse effect on Aramco of the pro-Zionist policy of the United States government that's underlined. All Arabs resent the actions of the present United States administration as unfriendly to them. The prestige of the United States government among Arabs has practically vanished, while that of Britain has greatly increased. Popular Arab resentment against the United States is at present greater than fear or dislike of the USSR. The United States government appears to the Arabs to be eager and friendly to the Zionists, while the Soviet Union was thought to be more accessible to a deal. Um, the uh, war would break out once the Jewish state was, was declared. Uh, there could be a bloodbath. Uh, if the United States uh, should uh, support the Zionist state, 
the, the consequences for American companies in the region, American schools and universities uh, would be disastrous. Uh, uh, not to mention uh, uh, access to military bases and access to oil in the Arab countries. As for the Soviet Union, Eddie said, of the four interested parties, the United States, the Arabs, the Zionists, and Russia, only Russia stands to gain by a Jewish state in Palestine. It's well known why Russia is supporting the partition uh, and why she is, in his words, pouring communist immigrants uh, into the region, uh, uh, that is to drive Britain out of the, of the region. On January 20th of 1948, George Kennan uh, wrote the first of consequential memos. Report by the policy planning staff of the United States with respect to Palestine, which he sent to Secretary Marshall, to whom he was close. The paper had been prepared in close collaboration with Henderson and had his general approval. This is Kennan on January, in the January 20th memo. Palestine occupies a geographic position of great strategic significance to the United States. It is important for the control of the eastern end of the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. It is an outlet for the oil of the Middle East, which in turn is important to U.S. security. And finally, it's the center of a number of major political cross-currents. Events in Palestine cannot help being reflected in a number of directions. For these reasons, in particular in view of the Soviet pressure against the periphery of that area and Soviet infiltration into the area, it's important that political, economic, and social stability be maintained there. Because of the present irreconcilable differences between Arabs and Jews in Palestine, great danger exists that the area may become the source of serious unrest and instability, which could be readily exploited by the Soviet Union unless a workable solution can be found. Um, as the British forces withdrew from the area, uh, large-scale Arab opposition would be expected. Um, uh, if the United States declared its support for the Jews in Palestine, uh, King Saud and other Arab leaders uh, had declared that they would uh, uh, resist this by force. Important U.S. oil concessions and airbase rates may be at stake. The Arabs were determined to resist partition with all means at their disposal. Uh, and, uh, and then he repeated uh, the dire predictions of the Eddy Memo about the loss of bases, the, lo the attacks on American universities and institutions in the region, uh, the possible deaths and injuries uh, to individual U.S. citizens, uh, and very important for George Marshall, uh, this can endanger the Marshall Plan in Europe. The present oil production of the Middle East is approximately 800,000 barrels a day, he wrote. To meet Marshall Plan requirements, production must be raised to about 2 million barrels a day since no oil for Europe for this purpose could be provided from the United States, Venezuela, or the Far East. Before the current disturbances, U.S. oil companies had made plans for the required developments in the Middle East. So the economic recovery of Western Europe, which was indispensable for the success of containment of communism in Western Europe, would also be undermined uh, by the establishment of a Jewish state. But the USSR stands to gain by the partition plan if it should be implemented by force. Uh, communist agents would have an excellent base from which to extend their subversive activities, he wrote, to disseminate propaganda and attempt to replace the present Arab governments. Um, the, uh, what is to be done? What was to be done? Uh, and what was to be done, Kennan concluded, was that the United States uh, had to correct the mistake that it made on November 29th of 1947 when it agreed to vote for the partition plan this was a disaster uh, for anyone who really was thinking not about the, the emotions of American popular opinion. And I would assume many of you have read Kennan on the dangers of popular opinion uh, and emotional popular opinion that overwhelms those who uh, are expert in uh, thinking about uh, American strategy and policy. It was necessary to resist, reverse the support for the partition plan, delay it, uh, and, uh, and replace it with uh, what came to be called in March of 1948 in Warren, UN Ambassador Warren Austin's speech to the United Nations, a trusteeship plan uh, which would uh, continue some kind of 
governing structure over what had been British Mandate Palestine by the United States and Britain and perhaps France as well, but no Jewish state. Uh, and that, Kennan believed, and he convinced Lovett and Marshall, and Henderson didn't need to be convinced, that uh, this, would, this would be uh, of great benefit uh, to the long-term strategic interests of the United States. Uh, the, um, uh, I want to, uh, do I have like five minutes? Uh, 10 minutes. 10 minutes, oh good, all right. Well, I, I'm in Washington, so I, you know, I work on getting to the point. <laughs> uh, so I leave out some of the wonderful, wonderful details. Um, the, um, uh, let's play around a bit and, and, uh, with some ideas and think about what an alternative policy. L what, if, what if the editor of The Nation, Frieda Kirchway, had been the Secretary of State? I think if, if Frieda Kirchway had been the Secretary of State, she might have said what she wrote in a number of the letters that she sent to Emanuel Seller and to Robert Wagner, and even some that she sent to the State Department. It was something along the following lines. The Arab Higher Committee, led by Hajim al-Husseini, Hajim al-Husseini, is led by people who are on the wrong side of the Second World War. They are Nazi collaborators. Of course they don't want to have a Jewish state. The reason they don't want to have a Jewish state is because they're anti-Semites. And the United States just fought a war against anti-Semitism, against a government that was anti-Semitic. So why don't we have a big public campaign and tell the world about these Nazi collaborators and that they're a bunch of racists and anti-Semites and we just fought a war against racism and anti-Semitism and we don't think they should sit in the United Nations because the United Nations is named after the United Nations that fought against Nazi Germany and Japan and fascist Italy. So let's keep the spirit of the United Nations alive. And furthermore, this guy David Ben-Gurion. Who is this David Ben-Gurion? He's like Ernst Bevan. He's like the French socialists. He's like the German social democrats. They all, none of them are communists. They know communists a lot better than a lot of Americans do because they've lived in countries that ha actually had communists. And they fought the communists. This Ben-Gurion and the Haganah, they're not a bunch of communists. They're social democrats. So if we're gonna make common cause with social democrats in Western Europe to contain communism, which Mr. Kennan wants to do, and that's a good idea, why don't we make common cause with the social democrats in Tel Aviv? who also are not communists. If we're gonna do that in Europe, why don't we do that in Palestine? And why don't we put some of those Arabs who are claiming to fight colonialism and racism a bit on the moral defensive? Why is everybody so quick to forget what the Second World War was about? This is 1947. This is 1948. It was only two years ago or three years ago. Why this rush to forget? Of course, Frieda Kirchway was not the Secretary of State. She was just the editor of The Nation magazine. And she gave those kind of stem winders in the pages of The Nation. But those, that policy option was not something that was discussed in Foggy Bottom. Uh, and so this is a German historian's take on American foreign relations. Uh, as you all know, uh, the scholarship on, on these years is massive. Uh, and I, I, I'm not... Pre, uh, presuming to add to the um, very fine diplomatic history, but I write as an intellectual historian, uh, and one of the things that we intellectual historians are interested in is the meaning of words. And if you teach at a university like I do, uh, or just pay attention to public affairs, then you know that for many decades, recent decades, the term Zionism was somehow had assumed reactionary associations. But uh, it's to reconstruct the mentalities of 1946, 47, 48. Um, that, that is one of the, one of the goals of, of, the, of this book and, and uh, uh, this research. When you look, as I have, at the files of the United States Department of State, um, what they are preoccupied with is imposing an arms embargo on the Middle East, on seeing to it that the British somehow be well informed about every ship that leaves Marseille or Italian parts, ports with Jewish immigrants who are trying to get to Palestine. Again, faced with the decision, and this was raw power politics, 
Who are we going to side with? The British and the British Empire, which is a state and more than a state and is crucial to the containment of the Soviet Union and communism, or a not yet existent bunch of Jews who are trying to start a state and who knows if it's going to work. And that was the mood in the State Department. And the answer to that, that dilemma was quite obvious, who we're going to side with. We're going to side with Britain because we've got to contain the Soviets and we're not sure. We don't want to take a risk on this Zionist thing. Who knows where they're going to turn. Uh, the, um, in 1949, I'll close with this. Uh, I forget exactly the name of the American diplomat who was talking to David Ben-Gurion. But he had the nerve to say to them, after all we've done for you, after all we've done for you, uh, you, you should appreciate uh, the enormous assistance that the United States gave to, uh, to the Haganah uh, in 1947-48. And Ben-Gurion, uh, perhaps those of you who've read Ben-Gurion's very gracious and grateful letter to President Truman, thanking him for his support, of course appreciated what Truman had done. Um, uh, but he said to this diplomat, when we really needed you, when we really needed the help, you weren't there. Ben-Gurion wasn't charmed. So the upshot of what I'm saying is that uh, the state of Israel needed the support that Harry Truman gave to it. It needed the diplomatic support of the United States. But when the war began, in December of 1947, right after the UN partition plan, and Husseini unleashed the Arab Higher Committee on the Jews in Palestine. And then in May, when the five Arab states invaded uh, Palestine, the United States sent no arms at all. Uh, and that impulse not to be identified with the state of Israel was one that persisted in the American State Department until the Nixon administration in the aftermath of the Six-Day War, when the argument about containment in the Soviet Union was the reverse as it was in 1946 and 47, because at that point, as you, many of you will recall, the president said to Henry Kissinger, um, uh, the Soviets are clearly trying to win this war, send the Israelis uh, whatever they need. One last comment about France. The, um, the fact that Israel, became so closely wedded to the, to the Western democracies had to do mostly with the fact that the Jews in Israel were Democrats and that they had no interest in aligning with dictators. But the government of France was the government more than any other that was responsible for integrating this new and vulnerable state of Israel in the 1950s and 60s into the West. And that's a story that goes beyond today's talk because in 1947 and 48, the French government was split between a French foreign ministry that, that spoke and thought a lot like uh, Marshall and Lovett and Kennan and was concerned about uh, the uh, problem of containment and of preserving a, a French imperial presence in the Middle East, which would be upset in their view by the Zionist project. But the Ministry of the Interior was led by socialist ministers, Jules Mock and Edward de Proux, heirs of Leon Blum. And they looked the other way. They allowed a lot of phony passports to be used in Marseille. Um, they worked closely and discreetly with the Mossad in supporting illegal Jewish immigration to Palestine. And then in the 50s and 60s, uh, uh, French socialist prime ministers, uh, Mendes France and others, sent the military equipment that the new state of Israel <coughs> needed to survive. So these liberal and left-leaning impulses that were crucial to the early history of the Zionist project uh, became forgotten or little known uh, in, the, in the face of the propaganda campaign that I described at the outset of the talk. But one purpose of, uh, of this talk is to do, is to remind us of a cliche that also happens to be true, um, that historians uh, repeat often, which is that the past is a foreign country. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Professor Herf. Um, lots of questions. I'll, I'll start off with the, 
Department of, Dis of State in 46, 47, and 48, and their decision to side with Britain. Uh, were there discussions in the State Department that, in fact, Britain wasn't what it was before the war, that it was beginning to end its empire, and that uh, to ally with Britain and to think that Britain was going to reestablish order and was the, was the instrument to do so was to back uh, the side that wasn't going to win? The British decided to get out of India, uh, and the Americans were uh, su supported that. Uh, but the uh, uh, the decision to leave India made Palestine all the more important. Um, and uh, the um, uh, one of the fascinating aspects of this uh, uh, story is the reversal of the Labour Party's policy. Because those of you who are familiar with the British Labour Party during the Second World War will recall that it was an emphatically Zionist party. Uh, and the logic of anti-fascism and uh, news about uh, the uh, extermination of the Jews in Europe uh, flowed logically, according to Harold Lasky and other leaders of the Labour Party, um, into support for the Zionist uh, project. Uh, uh, so the, um, uh, but the, uh, uh, what is striking to me about the Pentagon talks is that these appear to be people who knew each other. Um, and that, uh, that is uh, uh, British soldiers and diplomats and American soldiers and diplomats who had come to know each other in the course of the Second World War in the Anglo-American alliance against, uh, against the Nazis. Uh, and uh, the, um, uh, those bonds, uh, I think, persisted. Uh, so uh, the, uh, there was a, uh, I th there, the, the Americans are not there saying it's a terrible thing that British and Britain is trying to retain its imperial presence in the Middle East. Far from it, just the opposite. Uh, it's that Zionism is the anti-imperial problem here. Uh, and uh, Britain, uh, needs the core of our policy there needs to be to retain British presence in the region. Um, because if Britain leaves, uh, then uh, it's going to be very difficult to contain the Soviet Union in this uh, crucial part of the world. And one of the things that Kennan and, 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 and others are uh, at the Pentagon talks, one of the major conclusions of the Pentagon talks is that the Middle East is vital uh, to American national security. Um, and I think that was a bit of a learning process for Kennan, because when you think about uh, the early s statements of containment, uh, as I recall, maybe I, I'm forgetting something, but as I recall, it's about Europe and Japan uh, primarily that, he, that he's thinking about, about Asia and Europe. Uh, the Pentagon talks are, are the moment uh, when, uh, when uh, the Middle East becomes a vital national security interest in the United States. Um, during the war, Alexander Kirk, the American ambassador to Cairo, uh, wrote very brilliant, interesting memos back to Cordell Hall that we can't win the Second World War if you neglect the Mediterranean, neglect, neglect the Middle East. Um, this is really crucial. You must you know, send the army, send the troops, invade North Africa, do it now. Uh, if we lose here, you won't, we can't win in Europe. And those, that, those Kirk memos are very very interesting. But the, the issue about oil and containment is a post-war issue, and that, that coalesces uh, in the fall of 1947. Okay, we'll open the floor to questions. I'll give shorter answers. Okay. Okay, well, right here in the front, we'll get a microphone to you. And mic's coming, and uh, question, uh, yeah, it's questions. A question. Questions, yes. Um, in Leading up to the uh, Truman decision to recognize the state of Israel and even to vote for partition, there were people on both sides of the situation and Cliff, Clark Clifford and so on. Yes. So what happened to that side <laughs> in the aftermath of the state Pentagon coalition to prevent any arming of uh, the state of Israel? Well, I think that uh, the, the bureaucracy demonstrated its power. Uh, the, the, to me, I think this is an example of the limits of presidential power, that uh, the, um, uh, pre Harry Truman... In the other two decisions. Recognizing the state was one thing. Yeah. Uh, 
then actually becoming an ally of this new state, of arming it, uh, that was another step. And the arguments that were made um, uh, by the experts uh, in the State Department were that um, uh, if we follow the path of the Frida Kirchways of the world, uh, uh, this woman is in a, in a dream world, uh, uh, there are lots more Arabs than there are Jews, and, uh, and the various disasters that, uh, that Bill Eddy described would in fact ensue. Uh, so that argument was very powerful, and it persisted in the State Department for several decades. Uh, that, that, uh, so, um, uh, the, there, there was, I, many people, I mean, I, this audience, I think this audience understands, uh, recalls that Israel won the Six-Day War with French Mirage jets. There was no significant American military equipment that the, that the Israelis used in 1967. There was some, but it primarily came from France uh, at a time when the Soviet Union had become an enemy of Israel. Uh, and, the Suez Canal, and the Suez War. Yes, as well, yeah. So, uh, the uh, Truman was able to, without Truman, without Truman, the um, Jewish agency would have been possibly in a situation of fighting a war against the United Nations. And that would have been impossible. That th it would have been very difficult to imagine the state emerging if, if uh, uh, in, in, in such a situation. So, um, uh, what Truman did was very important, but uh, when th there was a war on, and I, if you read Ben-Gurion's diaries, which are in French, they're fascinating, uh, he's preoccupied with, you know, wh when are, wh we, we've ordered 500 machine guns, where are they? You know, and uh, th these artillery things, they were supposed to be here last week, and uh, that's what's on his mind, and they came from Czechoslovakia. Here and then in the back. Yeah, I just uh, wonder when the uh, United Nations made their proclamation, did they really want to establish a Jewish state, or did the proclamation just show a partition plan with land for Jews? I say that for two reasons. The plan showed a land for Jews, which was, I think, 485,000 Jews and 325,000 Arabs, so it was hardly. A, land, a Jewish land, and when uh, Truman signed the recognition of Israel, there was no name for it, so it said the Jewish state, but David Ben-Gurion during those hours certainly came up with a name like, after my cousin Israel, and I believe that uh, Truman crossed out the words Jewish state, and it shows the state of Israel. In other words, when he recognized it, I can't. You know, at the moment, I'd have to look at the files to see who, what words were were not crossed out. But I, I would make this point: um, the, uh, the there, there was a I forget the name of the of the scholar who gave a very fine talk here at the Wilson Center four or five years ago about Soviet policy. Uh, 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 I think he called it the big surprise. Andre Gromyko's speech of, of May 1947 at the United Nations said. In that speech, he said, we would prefer a binational state. We would prefer a state in which the Jews and the Arabs would get along with one another. Uh, like in the Soviet Union, where everybody gets along with one another, right? Uh, but it just doesn't look like they're going to get along with each other. And so if that's the case, then we are in favor of a partition for, and, 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 and a partition into a Jewish state and an Arab state. He said that in May of 47. And with that, the United States, uh, uh, then in the fall, that was the partition resolution in favor of two states. Uh, so uh, it was quite clear. Um, and, uh, the, and the State Department viewed this as an upswelling of emotion and passion that emerged out of the Second World War and the disaster of the Holocaust, and then he needed to do something about it in order to protect American national security interests. Uh, and uh, hence, um, uh, the policy planning staff memos uh, and, uh, and the, importance, uh, the importance of Kennan. Um, 
I mean, I admire Kennan enormously, and I, I want to re repeat what I said about how gracious and warm and, and helpful he was to me at a very important point in my life. And here at the, at the Kennan Institute, obviously, it's not necessary to extol the contributions he's made uh, to American foreign relations. But I also was quite taken aback when I read his comments on the Nuremberg war crimes trials, which he opposed. And I was really stunned that he thought that this was an example of American self-righteousness that would just ground the Germans' nose into the dirt and would undermine our future policy in attempting to incorporate Germany into a Western alliance. That also was a policy planning staff statement. So I, th I think we historians of Germany know or believe that the real meaning of the Second World War took a long time to sink in. For some people, the survivors, uh, the Jews, it sunk in very quickly. But for a lot of the rest of the world, it took a long time for it to sink in. And I, I, you know, I think that's you know, not surprising, but uh, uh, it was, uh, that, that was another aspect of... Uh, Kennan was a man of his time. And uh, I think that people in the United States didn't fully understand what happened on the Eastern Front for decades. Michael. And then we're going to take a bunch of questions. Yes. Uh, yeah. Michael, so go My ahead. question sort of begins exactly where you end off. I want to ask about Kennan's anti-Semitism, which is extensively documented in his diaries that came out a few years ago that had to color his attitudes in addition to strategic considerations. And then a kind of second question that follows from the first, which is that I think for Kennan, I know less about the anti-Semitism of the State Department in those years, but it's commonly referred to, and, and I'm curious if you came across that in your research, but I think it was just typical to look at foreign policy through a civilizational lens. And in that sense, there was only one partner for the U.S., and that was Western Europe, because it was, according to Kennan and people who thought like him, civilizationally sort of kin to the U.S., whereas Israel was uh, sort of way off the map. And uh, I think that that must have played a role uh, as well in these strategic considerations. You look at what the European powers are doing in the Middle East, you see what the Arabs are doing, and what the practical interests are, and then it's sort of oil uh, and these kinds of things. But any kind of sentimental bond uh, you know, to the Jewish people or to a Jewish state, I think, was precluded by the civilizational outlook of, of, of Ken and his, as you say, of, of his generation of policymakers. May I? Yes, go ahead. Mm -hmm. I think, okay. David Nirenberg has written a very fine book called Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition which um, those of you who, are, who like to read very demanding, complicated <laughs> books will, will, will find uh, very worth reading. And what David points out is that anti-Judaism is part of Western civilization. It's a, it, it is one of its defining features. So is freedom, so is individual rights, so is human rights, so is democracy. They're all part of it, but that's part of the mix. Um, and um, uh, the, um, and so, in, in that sense, Kennan's understanding of civilization was, was of a Christian civilization. Uh, I, and uh, the Christianity is so... But it wasn't the Christianity of Franklin Roosevelt or Winston Churchill. It wasn't. I mean, the, 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 when, when the two of them sang uh, onward Christian soldiers um, off the coast of Nova Scotia, um, they, re they were redefining the meaning of Christianity uh, and, and, and reasserting the connection between the Old Testament and the New and the prophetic tradition and, and Christianity. And unconsciously, Roosevelt and Churchill um, saw the Second World War as a war to redefine the meaning of Christianity as well, that it, wasn't, it didn't mean what the Nazis said it meant. Um, but Roosevelt and Churchill were Roosevelt and Churchill. Not everybody was, you know, <laughs> no, they were exceptional people. Uh, and, and so what you, what you said, Michael, I think I, you know, would agree with. I didn't, you know, I, I don't want to focus specifically on, uh, on Kennan's anti-Semitism. Uh, the, uh, uh, I think... I'd rather just let the documents speak for themselves. I don't want to engage in name calling and uh, the, uh, 
Um, you know, I, the United States fought the Second World War at a time when the majority of American citizens, or a very, very significant percentage of American citizens, regarded themselves as anti-Semites. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just these WASP guys from Harvard and Yale and the State Department. Uh, that, that makes it much too easy. The remarkable thing is that Franklin Roosevelt waged this war in a country in which hatred of Jews and belief that the Jews killed Jesus was, was still very widespread. So, you know. Uh, okay, so we're, yeah. we're going to take one, two, and is there a third? And a three out right back there, so yeah. up here first. What about, the ex what about the explanation that Truman voted for the partition because America didn't want all the Jewish refugees in America. Okay. Take Wayne. That was an argument. Oh, wait, wait, oh. We're going to take three questions. Oh, okay. So. I would just note there is a volume of Kennan's writings from his time in Prague in the 1930s, mm -hmm. uh, where his anti-Semitism is, is fairly clear. Uh -huh. This predates the war. This predates the Holocaust. Uh, it doesn't predate the Nuremberg Laws. It doesn't predate anti-Semitism as part of Hitler's program but it predates uh, an enormous amount of the background of the period which you are discussing. Okay, and there was a third hand right there uh, for the back, yeah. My question is uh, regarding Jordan, that how much did it help uh, Israel's stance after uh, creation of an Arab state, Jordan, to that uh, they can have the state, a Jewish state for themselves? How much did it benefit their narrative and how much did it uh, contribute into them actually being recognized as a straight globally? The, uh, this gets a bit beyond my, my expertise, but at the Pentagon talks, uh, what, was what was called Transjordan uh, was, was an important topic of conversation. And the, uh, the participants in the Pentagon talks wanted to ensure that Britain would still have bases in Transjordan. Uh, so um, the... Um, I think that's about all I have to say about that. Uh, the, uh, but the hope in the United Nations and Truman's hope really was that there would be an Arab state in 1947. Uh, wh what its borders exactly would be, what, what, how much of Jordan would be, or how much the, of, in Palestine, that was all up for debate. But the, um, uh, uh, yeah, the uh, uh, Ernst Bevin uh, said that the reason uh, that uh, uh, that the Americans, Truman and others who supported the Zionist the project, the reason they were supporting the Zionist project was, he said, because they didn't want to have Jews come to the United States. And the, um, the reaction to that in the liberal press in New York, in the New York Post, in PM, in The Nation, and other, it was outrage. And uh, that... Uh, uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, um, there was something to it. Uh, and the person to look at uh, in that regard is Emanuel Seller, uh, the congressman from Brooklyn. And Emanuel Seller, those of you who may recall, was responsible more than any other member of Congress for changing our immigration laws, uh, which discriminated against people from uh, Eastern and Southeastern Europe and, and Jews. Uh, and uh, uh, he and Senator Hart, I believe, uh, passed major legislation that made our immigration laws then less racist and less exclusionary. Um, but um, the, um, uh, the argument that was made by um, uh, Earl Harrison, by uh, the Anglo, by uh, uh, other investigating committees in 46 and 47 was that the Jews wanted to go to Palestine, uh, there were th that there were thousands of Jews in Europe, and that's where they wanted to go. And uh, uh, no one was going to tell them where to go. Uh, but, um, uh, and Kirchway was eloquent in this regard. I have Stone was as well. Um, uh, it's bad enough that the world didn't open, open its doors when Hitler began killing the Jews. But now after the war, there are a lot of uh, Where are the countries that are willing to admit them? Right? Uh, so uh, the... Um, uh, and then the Zionists would make their arguments about the historical significance of Palestine and its cultural and religious <laughs> significance and, and, and all of that. But uh, the, um, uh, Ron and Alice are here, and, and uh, they've written a, a superb book. And I, I think what they demonstrated was that 
was shock and surprise, Harry Truman was a politician, and he wanted to win elections. And so, yeah, it was a good idea to, to win the Jewish vote. I, it, I, I seem to recall in recent days, there are politicians on the television who are talking about wanting to get the votes of various minorities, right? This, is, this happens. The, uh, but what they also demonstrate um, is that Truman was listening to Marshall and Lovett and Kennan and these brilliant people in the State Department who were saying, Mr. President, what you're doing makes no strategic sense. Um, we need the oil from Aramco. Eddie has a point. He knows what he's talking about. What are you doing? And Truman uh, had, I think, uh, a sense of, to speak, refer to Michael Kimmage's point, he made a civilizational point. He, for him, there was a moral issue at stake, and he also thought that it was, that, that the, uh, the arguments about uh, the Soviet Union and the Middle East were overblown, and uh, uh, that he, in his view, he was doing what he thought was morally correct. That, that, that may sound a bit sentimental or what have you, but um, uh, uh, Truman did that uh, uh, because he thought it was the right thing to do. And uh, he, he himself uh, refers to his... Um, and one of the things about, about uh, writing about this period is that many of the leading figures in politics know the, know the Bible very well. It's not just Truman. I have Stone, you know, secular leftist. I mean, he, he's quoting, quoting uh, the prophets and uh, the, the citations from the Torah. It's, uh, and uh, it, it was, it was a, a, a generation and a, and, and a society that still was immersed in these texts. And, and Truman was one of those people. More questions? Well, I have one last question, um, and that is you, you started out with this really uh, excellent overview of the Soviet policy in 47 and 48. Yeah, yeah. Um, does the State Department, is it all indicated in its records that it begins to reconsider its policy when they realize that the Soviet Union has also no, is, is no longer kind of defending Israel? That the, that the original argument that somehow the Soviets could influence Israel because they were all socialists and they all had, came from a similar part of the world. Uh, is there any recognition of this fact and any attempt to reconsider what the Soviet Union is doing in this part of the world? Well, there's an, a truly brilliant CIA memo of analysis of 1953, which is sent to the, to the various leaders of the Arab states and it is a, for, they get an A plus for their research. The title is Soviet Opposition to Arab Aspirations in the United Nations 1947-48. And they went through every single committee meeting, every general assembly vote, and they demonstrated that at every point, the Soviet Union and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia voted with the Zionists, and they voted against the Arabs. And they wanted the Arab states to know just how Zionist the Soviet Union had been in the late 40s. Uh, uh, it's a superb document, and you can get it through the, um, uh, through the Crest system on, on, online. It'll, I'll, I'll be using it in the book a bit. But um, uh, if re the, I would say that in the, in the 50s and 60s, uh, there was a, the United States, uh, the, there was a difference between the realists in the government who, under, who thought about politics and economics and oil and containment and the kind of sentimental enthusiasm for Israel out of Hollywood and New York and American popular opinion. The two were very different things. And uh, uh, Kennan overplayed his hand. Uh, he, uh, you know, he, he left the, uh, the State Department uh, then in 1948 and uh, he was a man of great integrity, and, and you know, if two and two is four, he's going to say it's four. He's not going to say it's something else. And so he had the, he had the courage of his convictions, but it was, he pushed a bit too hard, I think. And it, it, uh, that, the, the intensity of his opposition was becoming a bit uncomfortable. And then, so yes, what you're, what you're implying, I think, did take place, that the public position of the United States 
changed, and why did it change? The reason it changed was that the, Isra the, the Jews won the war. And uh, that's, this is the last point I want to make. When Stephen Wise and Abba Silver spoke to Loy Henderson in 1945 with their very thoroughly researched memo about the Nazi collaboration of Hajim and al-Husseini, they represented something called uh, the American Zionist Emergency Committee, AZAC. What's that? Uh, why pay attention to this? But after Israel became a state and then didn't collapse in, the, in, in six months and somehow persisted, the fact of its sovereignty and the fact of its existence uh, also meant that some of the predictions of William Eddy, that it would just collapse and be defeated, proved not to be the case. And so then the realists in the State Department said, well, it's a fact. We may not be enormously enthusiastic about it, but it's a fact, and we have to come to terms with it. And, and also, the United States does not want to be in the position of encouraging other people to destroy the Jewish state. We're, that is not our policy. We, we recognized it, and we're going to live with it, and, uh, but, uh, but entering deeper into that alliance is not something that the United States was going to do in the first vulnerable decades of Israel's existence. Well, thank you so much, Professor Herf, and thank you all for coming, and a round of applause for excellent talk. Thanks thank so much. Thanks for having me.